In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which is not our passage for, t- for today, but in that passage, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus, just after he rose from the grave and just before he ascended back to his heavenly throne, he commissioned his followers to continue the work of ministry he had begun. Jesus commissioned his disciples to help others to understand and to follow him, to baptize them and to teach them to live according to his words. Three Sundays ago, we considered the first implication of this great commission. We we considered evangelism and then we considered baptism. And last Sunday, uh, Pastor Ed helped us to consider discipling, the practice of helping others to love and to obey Jesus, that those others then would go on and help even others to love and to obey Jesus. And today, we will consider a fourth and final implication of the Great Commission, communion, the Lord's Supper. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly mention communion in his great commission, but he does imply it when he instructs us to teach others all that he has commanded. The Lord's Supper is commanded. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, after sharing the Passover meal with his 12 disciples in the upper room, he instituted the communion meal commanding his followers to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of him. Therefore, communion is an ordinance. It is a God-ordained ceremonial command, and that scene that we just talked about in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, that scene is actually recounted by the Apostle Paul in our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 11 verses 17 through 34. Today's passage provides us with the clearest exposition of communion in all of scripture. And it gives us several peripheral instructions that will help us this morning to gain some clarity on what communion is and how and by whom communion is to be taken. Unlike the topics of evangelism and discipling and baptism, communion is not widely written about in God's word, which means we ought to be all the more familiar with what this passage does say about it. So before I read, here's a bit of context for this first letter from Paul to the church in Corinth written before his letter to the Roman church was written and about five to six years before his letter to the Philippians was written. So Corinth was a large and privileged commercial city deemed the Roman capital of Achaia. The citizens of Corinth were as superstitiously religious as they were grievously immoral. And so the Christians to whom Paul is writing this letter They're struggling along all of those same lines. In fact, at the time of Paul's writing, this very letter we're about to read from, the church in Corinth is divided into cliques and factions. They are tolerating open sexual immorality among their congregants and, as we're about to see, they are administering the Lord's Supper in such a thoughtless, careless manner that God is disciplining some of them with illness. 
There's a lot in this passage. And so I'd invite you to follow along carefully as I read carefully 1 Corinthians 11, verses 13, oh, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you say a word of prayer with me? Father, instruct us concerning communion and help us to administer it rightly for your glory and our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this very clear divinely inspired passage of scripture we've just read, we are told, number one, what communion is, if you're an outline note taker. Number one, what communion is, and number two, I've, I've, I've combined two points, how and by whom communion is to be taken. Let's look at number one. 
what communion is. And let's first jump together to verses 23 through 26 as Paul recounts the night of Jesus' betrayal. After Jesus and his disciples finished the Passover meal in the upper room, Paul recounts how, uh, how Jesus took some bread and how he thanked his heavenly father for it and how he broke it for his disciples to eat, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, the Roman Catholic Church insists that during communion, the bread actually becomes the body of Christ. This divine metamorphosis is referred to as the doctrine of transubstantiation. There won't be a spelling quiz here because I don't even know how to. The doctrine of transubstantiation and the reason for the Roman Catholic Church's belief is right here when Jesus says, well, this is my body. But in John 10, Jesus also says that he is the vine and that he is the door through whom sheep are gathered into the church. And yet, whenever we come across a vine and a doorway, we don't say, there's Jesus. Because we know that he is speaking metaphorically. And we know that he's speaking metaphorically because in the same breath, just after he tells his disciples to take the bread which is his body, he tells them to do so in remembrance of him. That word is an important qualifier. To remember Christ when eating the bread indicates that the bread is a memorial of his body. It's not his actual body. What would we be doing remembering someone that we're staring right at? In the same way also, verse 25, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, in this verse, Paul recounts the profound significance that Jesus places on communion. The Passover meal that he had just shared with his Jewish disciples served as the old covenant reminder, that is the reminder of the lamb that was sacrificed on the night of Israel's exodus out of Egypt, the lamb whose blood was painted above the doorways of the Israelite houses in order to spare them from God's wrath against Egypt. But the communion meal, according to Jesus here, now serves as the new covenant reminder of himself, the Lamb of God. The reminder of his own body and blood poured out to spare not just Israelites, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, saving them from God's wrath against a sinful world. In breaking the bread and passing the cup, Jesus is saying, here is a new meal, signifying the new covenant the new covenant that the old covenant has been shadowing all the way up until this moment. Paul finishes his thought in verse 26 saying, look, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the truer and better forever lamb. You proclaim his death until he comes. Now, eating and drinking a meal is a powerful multi-sensory tool. I'll give you a story. Every time I eat spaghetti, 
It takes me back to the dinner table with my dad and mom and sister and brother. When I eat spaghetti, I can almost see the room we used to sit in as a family. I can almost see myself scraping off green beans onto my brother's plate, like while dad and mom, that was a, a confession, dad. While you weren't looking, I never ate those green beans. I can also see myself just stressing out over the algebra homework that awaited me after spaghetti. It's one of the reasons why I got stressed out eating spaghetti now, right? Oh, why am I so stressed? When I eat spaghetti, I am engulfed in vivid memories that actually affect me. Most of us have a certain meal that does this to us because food is multisensory. Look, aroma and texture and flavor. We're all gonna get hungry, right, right now, but just go with me on this. Aroma and texture and flavor and, and the visual, right? They have a way of transporting us to significant times and places, and that is exactly what the communion meal is intended to do for us. Aubrey Sequeira is the name of a pastor and author, author from India, and in his little booklet, I think it, right, we're gonna make these available soon to the, to the church. Why is the Lord's Supper so important? In that little booklet, Aubrey Sakaya, an Indian pastor, says this, as we partake in the communion meal, we remember Christ. We look back with thankful hearts to the cross. We don't need to repeat Jesus' sacrifice because it's perfect and it doesn't need any improvements. Instead, we remember and relish in what he has done, what his perfect sacrifice has accomplished for us. Listen as he continues. As you taste the bread, remember that as real as that bread is in your mouth, so real is the fact that the Son of God became a man and gave up his body that you might have eternal life. As you taste the bitter sweetness of the wine or the juice, remember the sweetness of having your sins forgiven, which came at a bitter cost to Jesus who poured out his blood for you. As you eat and drink the Lord's Supper, remember you were an enemy of God, but now you've been adopted into his family. You stood condemned in your sin, but now you are counted as righteous. You are a slave to sin, but now you have been set free to serve God. You were dead in your sin, but now you have been made alive. You were headed for hell, and so was I, but now in Christ we are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. As you eat the bread and as you drink the cup, a multi-sensory meal that ought take us back into an experience of that memory. Communion is that multi-sensory meal that transports us in repentance and celebration to the very cross of Christ where his temporal death crowned us with eternal life. Now, how and by whom is communion to be taken? And what I don't mean by how is wafer or bread, wine or, or juice. Now, I'm reading about that, uh, but that's not what we're talking about uh, right now. This morning, what I mean by how and by whom communion is taken is this. What should our posture be when taking communion and, and what 
level of understanding should be possessed by those who take communion. Our passage offers clear answers to both of these questions. And so if you're a note taker, underneath point number two, we're gonna have an A and a B, or a one and a two, or a whatever. Uh, we'll consider two instructions for how communion is to be taken. Number one, together. Number two, in a worthy manner. Here's what we mean. Together. The whole of a local body of believers, the local church. Beginning in verse 17, we see that the church in Corinth is missing the mark on this. When you come together, Paul writes, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Imagine being told that. For in the first place, verses 18 and 19, when you do come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And then he yields that some divisions in the church are actually necessary in order to distinguish who is and who is not a true follower of Christ. That's a sobering thing to think about. Yet in this context, right here, Paul is upset about the divisions amongst the, Corinth, uh, the Corinthians because the divisions are fickle. The divisions are like Euodia's and Syntyche's division in Philippians chapter four. They are divisions between brothers and sisters in Christ who should be mature enough to agree in the Lord despite their disagreements about COVID or how old the earth is or who the best politician to vote for is in this nightmare of American history. The divisions amongst the, um, amongst the Corinthians are so numerous and so fickle, Paul continues in verses 20 and 21 saying, look, when you do come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you're eating. You think you are. You might be taking the bread and the cup, but you're doing so while being spiritually splintered from one another. Some of you take the bread and the cup by yourselves with no, little to no regard for your fellow members. In fact, some of you, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, go back for seconds and you get drunk on wine even before others are able to take it, which is humiliating to them and it's harmful to the church's unity. Verse 22, don't you have homes in which to eat dinner and drink some wine? The implied answer is yes, you do. Do that in your home. Do you despise your brothers and sisters so much that you eat the Lord's family meal without them? Aren't you a spiritual family church? Does your church membership to and with one another mean nothing? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The book of 1 Corinthians is a fun one, man. He just blisters these people from beginning to end. It wouldn't be fun to be the one receiving the letter. Of course, I'm the one that most of the letter is really talking about, all the errors in my life. It's crazy. Five times, though, count it, in this passage, in the most clear exposition of communion we have in Scripture, five times within this passage, Paul emphasizes that it's togetherness with the local church that is essential for communion. Otherwise, you're not even taking communion. As often as we take communion, whether it be weekly or monthly, it should be at the very least when we come together, when we all come together. Look at what Paul urges in the middle of verse 33. Wait for one another. Wait for the whole body of believers. And this is why we don't partake of communion in our community groups. 
Each community group is individually part of the church. It is not the church in its entirety. This is why we discouraged community groups from taking communion at the beginning of COVID because our whole church was dispersed and disjointed for two months. In this passage, the clearest exposition of scripture, we are told we must wait for one another. And scenarios like like COVID early on should make us yearn for the meal. Oh, I can't wait to get back together to take of the Lord's Supper. I miss it. My body is reacting. I, 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 I long for the togetherness and the meal that binds us. The pastors here at Oaks have tried to lead well in that regard. But I need to personally confess to you, I have not led well in other ways pertaining to the Lord's Supper. For example, I have not... I don't know if it's fear of man or just not wanting to ripple the water too much. I have not insisted when two of you, when I hear that two of you are in a rift and your fellowship is nearly broken, I have not insisted that you make peace with one another before taking the bread and the cup. Heck, I've taken the bread and the cup with a rift between people. Also, I have not pulled people aside when I am genuinely questioning their allegiance to Christ I have not pulled them aside to ask them to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. I've not led well in this. Heck, I have encouraged our deacon of worship, Ed, to sing through communion while the rest of us partake of the supper. Keep singing, Ed. Keep going. Forgive me. Forgive me. The Lord's Supper should be a big deal to us because it's a big deal to our Lord. Look at verses 30 and 32. Some of the Corinthians were dying of illness because they weren't regarding the Lord's Supper as what it is, holy. God was mercifully disciplining them so that they weren't condemned along with the world. What a mercy when God inflicts judgment. Communion is to be taken together in unity and agreement in the Lord. Now, secondly, under point two, communion is to be taken in a worthy manner. Notice Paul's sobering words in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That is, guilty of trampling on the atoning sacrifice of Christ, guilty of mocking and scorning his costly gift. That is intense. Thankfully, in verses 28 and 29, Paul tells us how to avoid this, how we might take of communion in a worthy manner. And notice, in doing so, he begins to clue us in on who should partake of communion and who should probably not. Let a person examine himself. And after he's examined himself, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is made very clear in these two verses 
is that taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner requires a certain level of understanding and some spiritual maturity. Taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner requires enough spiritual wherewithal to self-examine and self-discern. To be able to prayerfully ask oneself questions like this. All right, Lord, I'm about to take communion, but am I truly turning from my sin and trusting in the sacrificial death of Christ? Am I truly striving to obey God's word, your word, and put on the righteousness of Christ? Am I truly stewarding my time, talent, and money for the glory of Christ? Am I truly contributing to the edification of this local church the way God commands me? Am I consistently approaching my brothers and sisters in truth and love when there is a rift between us? Am I praying for them? Am I submitting to the pastors of this church when what they say coincides with Scripture? And conversely, am I diligently listening to the pastors of this church so as to discern when they have veered from Scripture and then they need to be respectfully confronted? Some of us might be thinking right now, goodness, sweet mercy, this degree of self-examination sounds a lot like church membership. And we'd be pretty right to see that. Remember what we saw a couple weeks ago in Acts 2.42? Those 3,000 Jews were cut to the heart by the gospel. Then they were baptized. Then they were added to the church to submit to teaching, fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread. When we read scripture carefully, we see a peculiar interconnection between baptism, church membership, and communion with baptism marking our entry into the church and communion marking our shared meal with the church. Now, here at Oaks, we don't forbid non-members from partaking in the Lord's Supper, but it really should be understood, and I'm prayerfully considering how I am to remind the room of this when we partake of of the Lord's Supper, it should really be understood no matter how well-intentioned our past experiences have been in previous churches, it should be understood and adopted as prudent practice that unless someone is capable of being a church member, they really ought not be considered capable of taking the Lord's Supper capable of being baptized in repentance of sin, capable of self-examination and discernment, capable of performing the one another's of the New Testament, capable of submitting to pastors, capable of declaring the Lord's death until he comes. Unless someone is honestly capable of functioning akin to a church member, we shouldn't expect them to be capable of communion because they're not. Now, I know right where a lot of us are going with this. I'm thinking of our kids too, thinking of my own kids. Many of our kids are growing up, they're growing in their comprehension of the gospel. Hallelujah. Many of them are retaining the stories of God's word. Hallelujah. 
Many of them are growing in their obedience to their parents. These are wonderful signs that are worthy of celebration and encouragement to all the dads and moms who are discipling their children. But because our kids are showing signs of faithfulness, are we preparing to walk them down the aisle of marriage? No, not yet. Because they show signs of self-control, are we handing them iPhones? Pray God not. Because they are learning to articulate the gospel, are we sending them out to, you know, as missionaries? And I'm not gonna open the can of worms on public school, Christian school, all that stuff. Your kid isn't a missionary. Let him grow up. He's an infant. Grow him up into maturity and then send him out onto the mission field. So what do we do instead? We wait. Whew. That's hard in America. We continue to pray for the fruitful conversion of our children, and then we watch for the persistent fruit of conversion. And then, as pastor theologian Jonathan Lehman says, when our kids are standing more on their own two feet, closer to adulthood, if not full-blown adults, then we joyfully watch them demonstrate their own two-footed expression and faith in baptism, and then we joyfully watch them partake in the Lord's Supper because they truly start to get what this is all about. Maybe right now it's becoming obvious why I didn't preach this message on Communion Sunday. We did it that way intentionally to give needed time to each of us to reflect on this passage, to reflect on what I have said, to discern whether or not what I'm saying is even biblical, and if it's not, take me out to coffee or an, an even more delicious beverage, and you treat me, and you tell me why I'm wrong. I, I truly mean that in all humility. Man, I don't have this all figured out. I didn't preach this sermon on Communion Sunday because very probably all of us need to make adjustments concerning the Lord's Supper, the way we partake of it. I know I need to adjust some of the way I administer it. But this meal, a multi-sensory explosion of gospel profundity is holy and we declare the death of Christ until he returns. How, glory a How glorious a death. And as we take of this meal, as we come together to drink of the cup and to take the bread, we are doing so in a spirit of togetherness and unity. Look, I don't have agreement with you on all things, but I've got your back in the Lord and I will go down with you, right next to you. We are together in this. And we are growing in the 59 one another's of the New Testament. One another this, submit to one another, encourage one another, hold one another accountable. All the more until you see the day of Christ drawing near. That's, we are declaring the body and blood of Jesus as we partake of it. We're also declaring we are all the saints underneath that blood. We are a family.
Communion is a multi-sensory gospel meal that when taken rightly in a spirit of self-examination and discernment brings utmost glory to God. And it ought to bring utmost joy to us. And so, the invitation at the end of this is going to be very simple. If you believe this, if you see it to be true in the scriptures, and yet you feel convicted as I have this week, let's repent. Just tell the Lord, I see it. I've even been well-intentioned, Lord, and I've not, I, 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 I've not beheld this meal as what it is. Forgive me and help me to walk in righteousness. And then, today, we get to joyfully anticipate a couple weeks from now when we do take of it together. Together, in a worthy manner. Let's pray. Everything that the Lord's Supper points us to, Lord, is is the reason why we're here today. Jesus, in your perfect life, death, and resurrection, you did everything that I have refused to do, everything that I am incapable of doing. You lived a perfect life. You died a death you didn't deserve. You rose to life in tremendous victory and now invite me and all my brothers and sisters in here to once again draw near to you by grace through faith. You are the king of kings, the ruler over death. You hold the keys. And your life, death, and resurrection is all, all that is needed for my entry into your kingdom. And now, and that's the same for my brothers and sisters, and now conform us and help us to look like we live in the kingdom of God. Not to earn our way in, you've done that. Thank you for that, Jesus. We praise you. But now inhabit our praises, Holy Spirit, as we bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen.